everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, time to discuss another book. Today we are going to be talking about Arun Krishnan's book, The Battle of Vatapi, Nandi's Charge. Arun, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Kushal. So, Arun, before we get into the book and we talk about the book, I'll request you to tell everybody a bit about yourself, as this is your first time on the podcast. Sure. Um, so let me see. How far back do you want me to start? As far back as you feel is needed. <laughs> um, well, okay. Uh, skipping all my my childhood and everything, I, I grew up in different parts of India, um, in Orissa, in Bengal, uh, Kanpur, boarding schools, etc. Uh, did my undergrad in India, then went to the US, got my PhD. Um, Worked in Singapore and Japan for quite some time. Came back to India in 2008. Um, and then around 2014, I decided to strike out on my own and start my own company. So I have my own uh, analytics firm. And uh, and yeah, so that's what I do. And uh, writing is a hobby. So, uh, and this is the culmination of about a 10 year old, 10 years of effort, actually. So this is obviously, you know, your debut book and it's going to be a series, right? Uh, so uh, right. As, as you had told me. So so my first question to you is this. Now, um, this is your debut as an author. And uh, what made you decide, okay, I'm going to work on this particular series and uh, uh, and the this is the way. Because you're, look, when I was reading your book, so this is where I come from. Like I don't read a lot of fiction or uh, historical fiction, right? Because the, this is not an absolute fiction, nor is it an absolute historical book, right? It's something in between. It is based on real incidents, but you've obviously worked around them. Now, why would you, on your debut series, <laughs> pick something where you can piss everybody off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I think you have the, the chances of uh, pissing somebody off are greater if you are writing about current events or something, right? Um, so I didn't look at it that way. Um, I've always been fascinated by history. I mean, leave, leave alone when we used to learn history in school when all of us hated it because of the way it was taught and, you know, having to remember 1526 was Battle of Panipat, etc., etc. But um, I was always fascinated by history. Uh, read a lot of, you know, Victor Hugo, um, you know, the Sound of Monte Cristo, things like that. Um, one of my biggest influences in this was uh, there's a there was a Tamil writer called Kalki Krishnamurti, a very very great writer. Um, he wrote uh, a few. I mean, he's written a number of books, but he wrote a few books which were historical fiction, which are kind of like the gold standard for historical fiction in at least the Tamil world. So I was extremely extremely uh, captivated by that. And uh, so I kind of, when I started thinking of writing something, um, I wanted to write something in about a historical event that happened. And I wanted to take up something that was in the South uh, because I felt there are lots of folks who are writing about, you know, incidents that happened in the North, but not as much in the South, at least in the English language in India. So that's how I went into this. All right, so now let's get into the subject of Southern Indian history itself, right? Now you, you know, when you're writing about something like this, 
uh, I don't know how to say because this is more of a technical question from a writer's perspective. I wanted to get into your brain. How do you decide when you're covering a historical character and then you are creating a narration around it too? How do you decide? Is there like a process where you decide, okay, this character gets this much weightage, this character gets that much weightage? I'm, I'm just fascinated. I just wanted to know how, did, how is the process about it? Well, that's a great question. And I'm, uh, the way I think about it, right? So if you, if you look at most historical fiction, um, the way it's written is from the perspective of uh, the lead character. Okay. So if you're writing about the Count of Monte Cristo, then you're basically doing it from the perspective of the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, what I wanted to do was make it more realistic in a sense to so think of it this way. Let's assume there is a king. Okay. And he is hatching some devious plans against another king. It's obvious King A is not going to be, you know, he's not going to go down the road himself on a horse and hatch those plans. He's going to make the overall plan or his ministers or commanders are going to do that. And then there are going to be other guys who kind of execute the plan. So um, to me, I didn't set out to say specifically, okay, I'm going to give this much weightage to this character or not. Um, I wanted to kind of put it from a common man's perspective. So uh, in the in the book, as you've seen, the three main protagonists are actually, you could think of them as foot soldiers. They're captains in the Pallava army. And uh, they're going around doing whatever it is that the high command has decided. So uh, now there are some, some characters who are real. Uh, the three protagonists are not real. I mean, there's no literary evidence for that. There's no... Uh, you know, epigraphical evidence for them. Um, the kings, yes, you know something about the kings. You know something about one of the generals of the Pallava army. But pretty much that's about it. This, the, the period in which this novel is set, which is the 7th century of the common era, you really have very, very sparse information. So it's good and bad in a way. It's uh, bad because there's not much to go on, but it's good because then it, you can bring your creative juices out and, you know, really really give rain free rain to them so you know kind of uh, alluded to my next question which i wanted to know is obviously when it comes to the historicity of this battle or of this whole period of indian history <clears throat> you know we we really don't have a lot of records i mean you you try to dig up as much as possible but we we barely find anything in a situation like this for an author to actually write a book on something that has barely got any historical record. How tough was it? Um, it was, look, again, like I said, to me, I, I looked at it from the positive side, right? Uh, in the sense that I could write pretty much what I wanted, the way I wanted it, because there really were no bounds on, you know, this is exactly what happened. We don't know that. So let to give you an example. Um, we know that the Chalukya king Pulikeshi defeated Harsha. That's one version. The other exactly. version is Harsha did not cross over. And so there really was no battle. So the historians are still divided over it. But let's assume there was a battle. That's all we know about it, that there was a battle and that the Narmada river was made as the boundary between the two kingdoms. Now, once you have just that bare stack, you can do anything with it, right? You can have all kinds of characters coming in and say, and 
um, you know, acting out their parts and say, okay, this is why this happened. Uh, this is why Harsha didn't come because, hey, Pulikeshi had a daughter that Harsha's son loved. I'm just, I'm just saying that's not in my book, obviously, but so you can come up with all these side characters who are not real, but who make the story plausible. And I wanted to kind of make the story plausible and give it that realistic feel to it. So even, even in the descriptions of the battles or whatever, I tried to bring that, uh, that feel into it. I don't know right. if I answered so your now, question though. Was that your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, okay. No, 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 no. So, so, so let's talk about this. The, you know, so let's get into the historical context at those times. Now, this is a very interesting period in Indian history, right? Yeah. But then, do you think, uh, I'm not talking about it from a, from a state perspective. I'm talking about from a national perspective because do you think we've done justice to this era of our history? Uh, in terms of learning about it, absolutely not. Uh, because we almost skip it, right? If you think back to school, we learn about the Maurya Empire. We skip forward to the Gupta Empire, which is maybe 150, 200 years ago, uh, before the events in this book. Uh, there is a brief mention of the Pallavas. There's maybe two lines on Pulikeshi defeating Harsha or having gone up against Harsha. And then you go to maybe one paragraph on the Choras and we rush through to, you know, the invasion and all of those Kutubuddin Aibak and those guys, right? So from, from a perspective of teaching history, absolutely not. From a perspective of even uh, movies and so on and so forth, in the north, in the south, there have been great movies. Okay, uh, there's been a great movie in Kannada movie um, about Pulikeshi mm -hmm. uh, by Dr. Rajkumar. It's a very, very well-known movie. Uh, lots of people have seen it. They fall in love with it. But if you think about the north, northern part of India, I don't think anybody has heard of it. Right? Now, yeah. you, you, you said something about this being a very interesting part of, uh, you know, interesting period in our history. And I'll tell you why I personally think so. The way we've been taught history is almost as if the North had its set of historical motifs and historical periods and things like that. The South had its own kingdom and never the twain did meet. That's how we are taught. Mm. Yeah. Right? You've never, you never taught that. I mean, if you think back to the Mahabharata, uh, there are references to the Dravida kings having fought in the Battle of Mahabharata, which might be you know, they might be interpolations later on because everybody wanted a piece of the Mahabharata and saying, hey, my, you know, my family fought in that war. But be that as it may, what it kind of shows is that the South was very intimately connected. And if you look at, you know, the Shakti piece, which go all the way across from the North to the South, the Ramayana goes all the way from, you know, Lord Rama goes all the way from Ayodhya to, to Lanka. So it was always connected, but the way we've been taught it is it wasn't. Now, if you think back to this period in time, just let's take Huen Sang, right? Huen Sang visited, he started off from Takshila, he went to Jain, from there I think he went to Kanoj, he went all the way to the east, then he went down south to Kanchi, which is where the Pallavas were ruling, then he went to Vatapi or Badami as we call it now, where Pulikeshi was ruling, all during that period. So that's one. Second, 
Pulikeshi is kind of the bridge between Harsha and the Pallavas, right? Because he's fought Harsha, who's in the north. What Pulikeshi, so Pulikeshi is not strictly, I mean, we, we shouldn't be thinking of this, first of all, from a current state boundary perspective, right? Because Pulikeshi's empire was a lot of North Karnataka, uh, mm-hmm. Southern Maharashtra, Gujarat, and some parts of Western Madhya Pradesh, as we have it now. So was Pulikeshi a Kannada king? Maybe the language he used was that, but that was the area that he controlled. Um, so Pulikeshi was the bridge between Harsha and Pallavas. Now, the other thing that most people don't realize is how intimately Sri Lankan history and our history, that is the Southern Indian history is connected because the Sri Lankan kings always meddled in the affairs of the Choras, the Pandyas, the Cheras, and these guys in return always meddled into their affairs. So there was a very, very, you know, even in the final battle between Pulikeshi and uh, uh, Narasimha Varma Pallava, uh, Pulikeshi was aided by the Sri Lankan king, one Sri Lankan king. The Pallava king was aided by his rival to the throne. That is the Sri Lankan king's rival to the throne. So there was a whole bunch, whole lot of stuff going on. Second, you had Buddhism, which was prevalent all over India. Jainism, which was huge in South India at that point in time. In fact, Narasimha Verma Pallava's father, Mahindra Verman, was actually a Jain. He had converted to Jainism. And then that's when the Bhakti movement started also in Tamil Nadu. When you had the, Shai- the Shaivite and the Vaishnavite saints, the Nayanmars, and uh, uh, you know the Arvars, and one of Upper, one of the greatest saints of the Shaivite tradition, he kind of quote unquote converted Mahendra Varman back to Shaivism. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. There were these huge universities of Takshila and Nalanda and Kanchi, these and Vatapi. These are all huge centers of learning. So to me, this period really deserves a lot more attention. But but then why do you think when it comes to the overall narration of Indian history, when it comes to the history of South or South Indian history, I don't know what other words should I use. It has always been presented as if, you know, uh, the South was very different. The South was uh, not connected to the North. The South had nothing to do with the North. Um, um, and they had their own thing going on. And it is only later on since the Islamic invasion of India and then later on these connections were established. Why do you think such such absurdities are are still passed off as think, scholarship in India? You, you use the word absurdity, right? Um, we know the absurdities that our historians have done with us for the last 70 years. So, um, you know, the Romila Thapas and the gang uh, of left historians. So to me... It might be because they wanted to foment some sort of a division between the two, you know, including the whole Aryan invasion theory and the Dravidian folks being separate and so on. But if you look back at every single uh, inscription on the Cholas, Choras, they are always in Tamil and Sanskrit. Okay, so it was not as if it was very different. I mean, in, in if you went east, maybe if you went to the Palas, that might have been in their local language and Sanskrit or Prakrit and Sanskrit. So it was always one. I think, like I said, the absurdities are of our own doing uh, because after independence, we never, and I'm going to use the word decolonial from uh, Sai Deepak's book, 
so we never decolonialized uh, we just hung on um, our we were left with our own uh, quote unquote uh, englishmen or pseudo englishmen who aped whatever they had learned so i don't think so to me it's just the fact that that's how it was presented to us i don't think that's the real history so let me play the devil's advocate here so let me try to play the leftist over here and say uh, arun uh, there are no real strong connections that you are claiming between let's say southern india and northern india uh, and uh, could you uh, give me three to five examples of how these people were interconnected well um kambar wrote the ramayana in the 12th century ce the ramayana starts off in ayodhya um like i said the shakti peeths are all over the place all over india um adi shankaracharya if oh this whole concept of we never had in india quote unquote india before the british came adi shankara went to all four corners of this bharatvarsha the subcontinent and established his mat there um what more do you want i mean the whole bhakti movement sang about krishna and in the south the tamil hymns um sang about krishna and uh, vrindavan and so on people always went to kashi okay in tamil nadu there is a town called ten kashi which is south kashi so please don't tell me that there was no connection it's just uh, it's just bad history you know bad historians writing bad history in my opinion also on this bit about you know sri lanka and india this is also quite a contention subject like if you <clears throat> go about and telling someone you know uh, like oh india and sri lanka are actually far more interconnected historically and culturally than people may want uh, to admit to it it gets a lot of pushback why do you But think why? that I mean, no i look i don't get that frankly because if you if you read the mahavamsa which is the sri lankan you know book of sri lankan history they claim lineage from you know the mauryas right uh, mahinda and sangamitra who were uh, ashoka's uh, daughter or uh, son and daughter they went to sri lanka the tooth relic of the buddha is supposed to have gone from india to sri lanka so if you, even assuming you know that the dating is correct and uh, the ashoka was in somewhere in the 3rd century bce that's 2300 years of interconnectedness i don't know why people would cavil at that it's just i don't get it honestly no but there are sinhala would... nationalists right who would have a oh, problem yeah. with it well you, that's basically because uh, i think that's more politics than history right uh, there's more politics than history to me yeah but then well you know in history everything is uh, in india every historical bit of uh, information yeah. is political so one of the fascinating things when we had gone to sri lanka and i had visited uh, polonnaruwa which is a an ancient uh, capital city of uh, sri lanka and there are a lot of you know old uh, temples and viharas which are and palaces which are in a dilapidated state and the, when you read it from the indian angle or the tamil angle you're always taught raja raja chola went and conquered sri lanka and there's a lot of pride in that you go there and you read the plates there raja raja chola the the chola king raja raja came and destroyed this 
okay so obviously you know the perspectives are very very different depending on which side of the park state you are so i don't mind that and uh, you know i don't want to get into the whole history of the tamil singhalese conflict but it's an age old conflict it's happened over the years people have been going back and forth like i said somebody was helping the sri lankan king manavamma he spent time at the pallava king's court because he had been hounded out by his rival and he helped uh, narasimhavarma pallava so see see that exactly is what what i was trying to get at that you know when it comes to discussion of history and talking about history there is this classical problem where um history is always going to be a problematic thing when you look at it from a nationalist lens because the nationalist always is going to look at it from their particular side's point of view and and the, the and that's where conflicts arise and and it's very funny in that that you know to me history was what point a happened point b happened point c happened just tell me what happened and let's move on in life that that's all uh, history was for me like i i i carry no particular and this is my personal opinion i i don't expect people to be like me i'm kind of absurd anyway but i i like you know there is this funny song like uh, it was written in hindi in a old movie like sikandar ne poras se ki thi ladai jo ki thi ladai to main kya karu kind of a song like okay i want to know they fought but beyond that you know i i don't i don't get it like i know these were bad people who came in india and you call them bad people and it's over but you know i i get reminded of a professor r vedyanathan's uh, famous speech he had a very interesting line in one speech i remember watching it on youtube once he said india is the only country where the future obviously we don't know about present we are somewhat sure about past everybody is uncertain he's like when one government comes in power aurangzeb becomes benevolent then another government comes in power he becomes a dictator brutal guy <laughs> he said we cannot even decide on basic things in history so when you took up this project because this project is obviously you are writing it from your point of view right and and uh, so how prepared were you for a pushback uh from that point of view where people would maybe come back to you and question you in that sense so i'm going to divide my answer into a couple of parts okay i'm i'm going to first address what you started off by saying which is you said to me it doesn't matter point you know a happened b happened c happened i think history is more than that right history is the ability to connect different events because in a sense the your your country's ethos and the way a people view themselves is defined by their understanding of their own history okay so let let's think about it this way how are we taught history in school i go back to that again and i'm not the only person who has said it i think sanjeev sanyal said it very beautifully in a talk but he said we are taught over time you know throughout our school days that we were a conquered nation every single bugger from the west came into india they beat us they beat us they beat us there was no pushback we never won any wars and so what it does is it kind of i think there's a deep seated inferiority complex that develops in indians who have gone through that schooling system so in that sense i am okay with you know a revisioning of history which actually fills the indian child with hope and with pride in his own her own country 
that doesn't mean we neglect the bad right we do talk about why is it that we lost okay why did mahmud of ghazni uh, you know uh, succeed against prithviraj chauhan whereas prithviraj actually defeated him in the first battle of the rain so we can do that but so but i think it's very very important to understand how history should be taught so that it builds a nation's collective consciousness especially a nation that spent a long long time under imperialism be it british imperialism or turkic mongol imperialism whatever you want to call it i think it's important for that coming so, to so let me be very clear clear here what i mean to say is history should be taught the way it happened it doesn't matter where the cards fall that's what i mean to say so if in that case somebody i like turns out being a bad guy let it be the bad guy oh, like ashoka yeah, so i think ashoka was a bad guy but he is not being thought to be the bad guy in indian history in fact in fact so there is a there is a brief discussion in my book about where this guy goes into a tavern and he is you know he's talking to a drunk you know i think he's talking to this lady sangamitra and he says uh, she asked him about ashoka he says yeah yeah i know and then he says you know what i think ashoka was a failure or something like that i don't remember the exact words i wrote because you know immediately after his death his entire empire went away so was he really success he was basically riding on the success of his grandfather chandragupta and his father right bindusara so uh, you're right again if you go come to recent times with uh, in karnataka you know the whole tipu sultan debate uh-huh. um, right tipu sultan was he a good guy or a bad there's a very famous line in in i don't you have you seen the movie nayagan uh, with kamal hasan yes uh, so, i have yes i uh, have okay. uh, obviously so the hindi dubbed version but i have seen it okay so in that there is a line where the little kid asks him his grandson asks him ninga nallavara kettavara that is are you a good guy or a bad guy and he says i don't know so to me tipu did a lot of wrong right he he killed all those people in mandya uh, mandya uh you know he he committed terrible atrocities in poor he killed off a lot of people in kerala um he might have done something good as well but we never taught that we had taught such a biased version where you know sanjay khan's sword of tipu sultan is the only thing we learn about tipu so i think mm-hmm. we need to kind of be very very open about the the characters that we are reading about our historical characters uh, what's and all that's my take now if i come to your question about was i worried about the backlash so if you're um it depends on how you write it okay so the way i think about it and i know where i think you're coming from because uh, i'm a tamilian i'm writing about you know i'm sitting in bangalore and i'm writing about uh kannada you know conflict between quote unquote a tamilian king which is a pallava king and uh, yeah kannada king which was publication let's get right into it right let's get into it so if that is a question um i don't view them that way so when i'm writing i'm not writing as a tamilian and i'm not writing or i'm not writing as you know a a, a person who lives in karnataka i'm thinking purely the way i view those two kings honestly are two great kings um who happened to go up against each other at the same time they were both very powerful they both had their compulsions to increase their empire and conflict was inevit- inevitable so there is one line um, in my book where uh, i have pulikeshi who's gone to visit 
um, Aryapura, which is now called Aihole. And if you haven't been there, you should go. It's like a university for uh, temple building, right? There's so many little, little temples there. They have very talking... inscriptions, right, over there. Yes. Uh, so in that, he's, he's kind of telling uh, his architect, uh, he says, you know, uh, maybe in another day and age, uh, Narasimha and I could have been friends. Uh, because he says something like, you know, he's also building some temples in Mahabalipuram. Um, and he said, yeah, in another day and age, we could have been friends, but we are kings and we are kings with our own pressures and what we need to do. So, so I, I'm, I really am not looking at it from, um, okay, you know what, I'm a Tamilian, so I should kind of belittle the other king and try and boost up the Pallava king. That's not the angle at all that I've taken. So let's let's build on this. And this is exactly what I was trying to get at. So while I was reading your book, that's exactly what I could get, right? Obviously, look, at the end of the day, you're not writing an actual historical narration. You're obviously adding some, some fictional element to it too because you're creating a story out of it and it's not your fault. The damn damn particular aspect of history is just not there you know we so we we need to fill in so many of the gaps because we just otherwise we can't narrate the story right but in a situation like this as you rightfully pointed out you know as a tamilian but at the end of the day isn't that the whole problem in this country right that that why can't you as a tamilian i say why can't you as a tamilian talk about some kashmir king why can't you i mean he's an indian king right he's a historical a personality of our history, our land, we are all one. You know, the, these things come only if I self-identify. Like, what, what am I going to identify as? I always joke about, like, I don't even feel Punjabi. I was born and raised in Mumbai in a majority Gujarati area. Maharashtra is a Marathi state. What the hell am I? So I don't identify as either or. Absolutely. And true. then I have family in North America. So what am I going to identify as? I have every right to comment on any Indian character. But what do you make of this, this, this entire thing where, oh, you can't comment on it. Oh, if you did, yo, you are a Tamilian. You have some ulterior motive. Look, I, I, I hear you completely because, see, I, like I said, I grew up, I grew up in Orissa and Bengal and everything, right? Um, the years I've spent outside Tamil Nadu are more, way more than what I, I spent only six years in Tamil Nadu, actually six, maybe eight years, eight years in Tamil Nadu. Um, other than that, I've spent it outside. So to me, uh, my, if you're talking sub-nationalism, in a sense, or my Indian identity is far stronger than any sub-national identity that I have. I don't have, okay, so that is to me. So I look at a, a Lasit Barfukan and, or a, a Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, or, you know, I, I, I marvel at, uh, Peshwa Baji Rao and how he never got defeated and I think those stories need to be told and there are people who are doing it um, I know so to me I, it doesn't matter I'm not looking at it from a very parochial angle of okay I must say this so that you know Tamil history gets a boost no I want to lay this out so that we Indians learn our history from different parts um, I learned of Lasit Burfukan only because I read Sanjeev Sanyal's book and I listened to his talk before that, I had no clue. Um, Martha Andavarma is another person who I heard of only because of uh, I heard I read Sanjeev Sanya's book, right? So there are all these folks, um, all these folks who all of us Indians should be celebrating. And to me, these sub-regional identities, which I think kind of also mischievously are being given a leg up by forces 
inimical to india if i might say so um i don't believe in that so when i write i'm writing purely as i i like these characters i like the fact that anybody who who you know harsha was a great great king okay do i feel uh, more passionate about pallavan king than harsha no to me they were all great kings but any king who could give harsha a bloody nose was a super great king right so pulikeshi has you know i have a huge respect for him but you have to understand in the story so because i started the story very late if i had started it when pulikeshi went and attacked and won that battle in kanchi then i would have shown obviously him winning that battle but this is titled the battle of vatapi so it's about events that happen very late so in a sense uh, pulikeshi is the old lion in the forest and narasimhavarma is the young lion and they're going up against each other and in the end what happens is the young lion defeats the old one does that mean uh, you know that there is any disrespect to the old one no because he still had a great empire and his empire survived him because uh, the i think the pallavas had uh, vatapi for only about 11 years or so and then his son makes a comeback and takes the territory and etc etc so i think it's just a fascinating i want people who read it and non south indians who read it to really get a feel for what that part of the country was at that point in time um later on if i actually find some other character that i want to write about and he's from you know maybe chhatrasal let's say from buddelkhand yeah why not you know he's he's somebody i admire as well so i might as well write about it yeah yeah so so one thing i have wanted to ask so obviously in your book uh you know you have relied on the history of south india from prehistoric times to the fall of vijayanagar uh, basically k n ilkant shastri's magnum okay. opus now now when you were going through that um that uh, work uh i i just wanted to know because uh, i have not read it completely i have read a few excerpts here and there uh, i have to say his writing style is just par excellence i mean uh, what a beautiful uh, you know way of writing um what did you find the most interesting when you were reading it because you obviously had to go through the whole damn thing which is gigantic yeah but i i see i have gone through that a few, quite a few years ago more than 10 years ago i had gone through it right um that was see again just a little bit about myself here right like i said i grew up in the east and the north which means i never studied tamil in school okay um the only reason i now can read and write tamil a my my mom taught me the the aksharas when i was i was young but b because i told you about talki's uh, historical fiction right he wrote his most famous one is called ponni in selvan which is which translates to kaveri's son uh, which is about rajaraja chola okay um i wanted to read that in the original so that's when i started reading tamil that was my first tamil book uh, it's it's a huge book it's like 1500 pages five volumes um, he had actually serialized it in a weekly and uh, the first volume took me almost a year to read uh, because i was very slow i had to stop every so often to consult a dictionary to see what the damn word meant um, but then my writing speed picked up and so on so i had read a lot about it and talki had given a lot of lit- you know references from history from nilakanta shastri's book from epigraphical evidences uh, and so that's when i started again reading nilakanta shastri so i kind of parallel those two 
um, what I don't think any particular thing struck out for me, except that it was a very, very advanced society. Um, and fortunately, you get to see a lot of it still, because uh, for the most part, the southern part of, you know, if you go, let's say, south of Bangalore, for the most part was saved from the invasion, right? So you still have the old temples, which you don't happen to have in the north. And I think I keep saying that South Indians, uh, at least Tamilians, owe a debt of gratitude to the Vijayanagara Empire um, and to uh, the Maratha Empire. Because without those two, you wouldn't have any of the old temples left. And so what you still see, I think, um, if you think back to Bahubali and the way they showed the temples and all, a lot of it is because those temples still exist in the south. If you go to Tanjaur and go to the Brihadishwara, the big temple, you can, that's a thousand years old. It finished, it completed a thousand years on uh, 2000, in 2012, I think. And that's huge. And you think back and say, oh my goodness, these guys were stunning. They were a very advanced society. Um, Prime Minister Modi keeps talking about the Uttiramerur inscriptions, which uh, Chora inscriptions, which talk about how they elected officials. So it's just it's just amazing to see how advanced we were, um, and it's good to remind ourselves of that. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you that uh, if not for Shivaji, I think a lot of things would have been different. So, you know, as Indians, we owe a lot of gratitude to Shivaji because definitely in Northern India, all the old temples are gone. All yeah. of them are gone. And and uh, I don't know how much, how much of a loss that would have caused, how much history is lost because of that, how much of, how many books are gone. We just, we just don't know, right? We can only speculate about the amount of losses Northern India has gone through. And I think in, a, in one of the major reasons why Northern India tends to, you know, have a siege-like mentality a lot of times is constantly because of that, you know, always be alert of the invasion mindset uh, because the North just seems to have. But another thing I wanted to talk about, you know, you know, you, you have picked up and you alluded to it even in the beginning of the podcast, but let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, you picked up a time in history where Buddhism and Jainism were, you know, they were kind of very relevant. I mean, yeah, the main thing, like in their aplomb, and and then obviously you have the bhakti movement coming in now. In your reading, <clears throat> was there mutual respect? Um, there was, in the sense uh, you didn't find. So I remember I said that Mahendra Varman was was initially a Jain, and then he was supposed to have been converted back to Shaivism. He didn't go around breaking Jain temples after that. Uh, although there's, I think, a couple of references to some, uh, you know, somebody being killed or something. Similarly, if you think about Pulikeshi, Pulikeshi was a, uh, uh, you know, I think he's a Vaishnavite uh, because their their emblem was the Varaha, right? Um, but the, one of the most famous, uh, I don't know if you, so in Carnatic music, there is a very very famous song in Carnatic music, uh, called Vatapi Ganapatim Bhaje. Okay. Um, it's a Sanskrit song, obviously, Vatapi Ganapatim Bhaje. That is, I pray to the Vatapi Ganapati. What is the Vatapi Ganapati? When Narasimha Varma Pallava's forces sacked Vatapi, 
his commander in chief a man called paranjodi who later became a shaivite saint called sirutondar he brought that vatapi from uh, that uh, ganapati ka murti he brought it from vatapi to a temple in tamil nadu which is and still there in that temple i forget the name of the temple um, we can google it but so the point is you have a, a king who is a vaishnavite who has a temple near his palace where you have a ganapati right um, you have he had buddhist uh, viharas there one of the biggest viharas in kanchi was a buddhist vihara at that point in time uh, there was a it was almost like a buddhist college there so i don't i think uh, there might have been a lot of it again was uh, if you again think back to adi shankara and his uh, debate with mandana mishra right uh, mandana mishra was a buddhist and it's not like they went and whacked the buddhist and killed them they actually had a debate and who was the person who was the you know mediating that debate it was mandana mishra's wife so i think uh i think what modern indian historians of the uh, leftist ilk do is to find some sort of an equivalence between the iconoclasm that happened due to the invasions in the north and say that oh this happened between the hindus and buddhists and jains as well and so you know you can't really complain about it no it didn't it didn't if it had happened it was a very very minor thing maybe a localized thing but i don't agree that it happened uh, you know systematically the way these folks did it in the so so if i was to paraphrase what you're saying uh, let's say compared to the advent of islam in india and its bloody history uh, the dispute between a buddhist and a jain or a jain and a hindu or, or a shaivite and a vaishnavite would not have been at that level a at most it would have been uh, a, a, if i was to use the urdu hindi word a kitabi debate sometimes it would lead to some skirmishes but nothing at the level of what uh, entailed when islam entered india absolutely nothing i mean look we we are we are the argumentative indians right i'm sure uh, so they would have come to blows if they were talking or something happened but you i nothing at the scale of what happened in the north due to the due to the invasion islamic invasion nothing of that nature right now this question i could have asked in the beginning but i wanted to ask in the latter half and look people will be like why does he talk about the story of the book that's the whole point you're supposed to read the book <laughs> now uh you know can you share some differences as an author you know differences between let's say writing a, a mythological story and what i think what you have written is a historical fiction where it's based on something so what would be the fundamental differences when you go about writing then and then maybe i'll take a few audience questions too sure um i think the fundamental difference is that you are a little more the constraints on you as a writer when you're writing historical fiction are i think way more than if you were writing about let's say the indic the puranas and uh, our itihasa okay okay um so even let's say you take uh, amish's uh, meluha trilogy versus his suhail uh, dev he would have way more freedom to write whatever he or give his creativity free reign when he was writing meluha rather than uh, and also meluha is strictly not uh, not you know uh, from the puranas or anything 
than when he wrote Suhail Dev because with Suhail Dev he had to be way more accurate in terms of the way those guys dress, what, do, how did they do battle, uh, you know, how did they behave, all of that. So you have constraints placed on you, um, and that to me is the fundamental difference. Uh, the, the constraints that you have as an, a writer placed on you, uh, you have to ensure that, for example, when I was writing, um, I wanted to write, I actually wrote down, uh, oh, this was, his was as regular as clockwork. And uh, I read that line, sentence again and he said, hold on, there were no clocks back then. So you've got to kind of back off and say, okay, how do I say this? And I think I used something like as regular as a crow, you know, a cock crowing in the morning or something like that. So you you have those constraints placed on you uh, when you're writing historical fiction. Yeah, and another thing is, right, while you're writing historical fictions, you have to be right on your facts on major yeah. major things, right? Yeah. So you have you less have freedom, to. right, in that sense? You absolutely have to be. So um, look, again, even in these, right, the facts aren't uh, 100% certain. Okay, why do I, what do I say, mean by that? Um, if you look at, let's say, the, the, what Neelakanta Shastri calls some of these Sri Lankan kings, they are kind of different from what the Mahavamsa, I have the Mahavamsa also with me. They are kind of different from that. The time periods are slightly different. <clears throat> so now, do I go with what the Mahavamsa is saying? Do I go with what uh, Dr. Shastri said? So I decide, look, I have to pick one. So I'm going to, I will be upfront about it and say, I'm going to go with whatever Neelakanta Shastri said. And so those are the names I'm going to use. Now, does it really matter whether this person was called Manavamma or not, or he could have been something else? Uh, sure. I mean, if you want to really nitpick and say so Sri Lankan comes to me and says, according to the Mahavamsa, this is, you know, not the king who was there. I'm like, okay, dude, sure. You know what? Um, but that's not, so as long as you are, you are reasonably certain about the fact, so you don't say, um, you know, Pulikeshi went across the Narmada and defeated Harsha and went up to Ujjain, then you're okay, I think. That's why I said, remember cool. I said, I said that uh, not having enough information sometimes can be a boon for a writer. Yeah, it could be. Uh, uh, it could be given you're honest, like you are, as you have been in this book. And you stick to the overall plot as history happened, and and then you know you you create uh, uh, you know you create some uh, bits with where uh, uh, things happen. And look, let me be very honest here before I get into the uh, audience questions too. I mean, what I liked about it is you start up very openly, you know, in your forward, you do talk about it. You talk about your restrictions. You talk about the, the freedoms you have taken and, and you go ahead with the, you know, with the reader of the book and tell them, look, these were the things that I was bound with. And this is how I'm going to play it out. This, these are the names I'm going to use. This is how it's going to go about it. And then you go ahead and uh, write your, and you are very open about the sources that you use also, which is, it's actually at the end of the day, it's a historical fiction. You did not have to mention it. If you ask me, you did not have to mention it. But you even go to the extent and mention your sources right in the forward. So, so yeah, I would actually, you know, credit you a lot about that. But let's get into a few questions. So, someone has sure. asked Arun. They are they are going, sir. Is Shivagami a character in your book, like Kalki Krishnamurti sir's book, uh, Shivagamin Saptam? Yeah, Shivagamin Sabadam. Uh... So he, so yeah. Kalki wrote a historical fiction 
on this exact battle that is the uh, shivagami in sabadam is the fight between narasimha verma and kulikeshan okay um, and i was very very aware of the fact that as a huge kalki fan i shouldn't bring any aspect of it into my book so no shivagami is a fictional character who kalki uh, made up so no he's she's not there in this book at all um, but my hat tip to kalki because i revere him so much is that there is a ca- character called naganandi naganandi is also one of the chief characters in uh, shivagami shivagami in sabadam have used the name naganandi uh, for the uh, the chalukya spy chief as my gentle hat tip to the great kalki that's right. about the only so resemblance the next question yeah the next question is um any plans to write about the the satavanas or the kushana empire after the series because we don't have many books about those kingdoms as well just send in some ideas i still have two books to go i've already started my second book of this trilogy my my new year resolution was to finish both the books this year i don't know if that's going to be feasible but um at least i'll i i'm sure for sure i'll get through the second book um and get started on the third but yeah um, in fact the last um, you know the last few days of december i had been to tanjavur and that belt and while i was there i had a couple of ideas pop into my head for books but yeah sure you know send me the ideas like we were discussing with kushal you know kushal and i that yeah if i if i can write about the kushana empire why not just me being a uh an indian should be enough for that and the lover of exactly Indian. so the these are two questions asked by the same gentleman so the first one is were the kalambas two in conflict with the pallavas prior to chalukyas the we don't so i didn't go into that aspect of it because it wasn't germane to the time period that i was writing in for in narasimha verma pallavas exactly. reign it wasn't true so i didn't kind of go into that um see if you think about it there are we have the sri lankan kings we have the uh, the pandya king we have the gangas western gangas we have the pallavas we have the chalukyas and we uh, we have the you know harsha's kingdom and there's going to be one more kingdom which is going to make its appearance in book 2 i won't say which one it is uh, but these were all involved at that point in time so that's what i've tried to focus on all right The next question was: Did the Pallavas or Chalukyas have trade ties with the Umayyads or Romans? Look, the Romans had trade ties with India, the southern part of India, and Musiri on the western coast, um, even before the Common Era. So there is no reason to think that that stopped. The Arabs have been coming to uh, the the southern part of India, uh, you know, to Kerala for. since almost the 700s or mid 8th century so i don't see why they wouldn't have had um, i didn't find any references to it but i do make a reference that in the port they could see chinese and they could see the arabs etc in the port so yeah sure somebody has asked a very interesting question i think they must have asked this question when we were talking about regionalism in india so i'm paraphrasing what they might have intended to ask So, is there a way where we can maybe draw the line, balance between regional pride and national pride? Yeah, you can as long as you don't get toxic about it, right? 
so for example if you if tamil nadu or karnataka are playing a ranji trophy match against mumbai hey i am i am supporting karnataka or i am supporting tamil nadu that is mm-hmm. re- my regional pride um, i support the royal challengers bangalore just because they are from bangalore that is and even you know even more restrictive regional pride uh, and you know as you know rcb fans are not the happiest fans in the world uh, we keep saying isala cup namde but it never happens so anyway besides the point but so you could have a non toxic regional pride at the same time you have to understand that as a civilization as the indic civilization to me that takes precedence over any other sub regional pride that i might have that's my personal uh, view um, and it's not a p- view i might have had 20 years ago or 15 years ago uh, it's developed over time that's my view at the current point in time 10 years down the road i don't know it might change again but then we'll have another conversation okay this is a very interesting question I- i'm going to add a little bit of a twist to it because somebody their question was why do you think there has been a rise in historical fictions based in india in the last 5 years i would say do you think there is a case that there is a rise in this genre oh absolutely i mean uh, it there is no doubt in my mind that 2014 uh, uh, modi ji's win was a watershed in that sense okay um, if you the, i think the whole ecosystem of where um, hindus actually felt proud to say they were hindu okay without being embarrassed usually hindus would be the self facing embarrassed about you know touting that they were hindus um so i think the whole that kind of gave a flip to this whole genre um of talking about our history because and talking about it in a sense that filled us with pride because we at that point said enough is enough and now it might be you know amish might have started writing it before 2014 i'm not saying that but if you look at it over the last 10 years or so there has been an abundance of new literature coming in lot of people are writing about it um and it's good it's good because reading something like this hopefully fills us with pride that we had these great kings we were not the losers that we were made out to be yeah so somebody has made a very interesting comment he's the person says i'm from gujarat and gujarat is greatly influenced by jainism we have influences both from the south and the north when it comes mm-hmm. to this aspect so uh in your studies uh have you come across any any interesting material on the western part of india as of now um honestly i haven't focused on it so it will be wrong of me to say anything about it um there was a lot going on there i know uh, pulikeshi see pulikeshi was kind of uh, his uncle had the throne and he had to fight his uncle to get the throne in the first place and when he was doing that a lot of the kingdoms that were already under chalukya rule kind of went away and so he fought he fought a lot of wars because like i said pulikeshi was not limited to modern day karnataka right it was he went up to maharashtra and which means he was fighting kings in gujarat so i'm sure if i were to write a book on pulikeshi maybe that's another idea right write one about pulikeshi and his initial struggles to become the great king that he did and build that empire so yeah there was a lot going on at that point uh that's another good idea for for a book 
<laughs> All right. So I guess, <clears throat> you know, one last question and maybe we'll wrap up the discussion today, Arun. So now that the book is done, obviously it's it's there for sales. What What is the most satisfying aspect for you personally? Just that the book got published. Okay, so um, I started writing this 10 years ago. Not kidding. 2011 is when, 11 is when I started writing it. Um, I gave up in the middle. And then um, for a lark, I just sent it in to Garuda Prakashan, uh, you know, through their website. And I forgot about that again. And then three months later, they got back to me saying, hey, we're interested in publishing it, provided you go ahead and complete the book. So to me, just, uh, I think there's a photo of me beaming with the actual printed copies in hand. Um, I think that was one of the greatest feelings in my life. Uh, if you leave alone, uh, getting married and having my two kids, uh, that particular thing was, I think, ranked right up there. Awesome. Awesome. So, so guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. But before we wrap it up, I just want to remind each and every one. When you go into the description of the podcast, you will see the link to buy the book. I will highly recommend everybody to go and buy the book. Look, it's a historical fiction. So normally you guys are used to me reading excerpts of the book. If I start reading excerpts of the book, I give the, the plot out. So, so you have to give me some leeway. I can't give the plot out of the book. It's a beautifully written book. Uh, it's extremely Thank gripping. You you tend to the language is not very complicated, so you can you know you can read it very fast. Uh, Arun has written it in a very simple format, which is very easy to digest, especially when it comes to historical fiction. That is something that I look out for when when you read something of that sort, because history books tend to be very heavy. Otherwise, you know this happened, that happened, this is how it happened, that is how it happened. So Arun, once again, <clears throat> thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, and I wish you Thank all God. the best for the next two books too. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kushal. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up once again. Description of the podcast. It doesn't matter if you're going to be watching this, uh, you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening to the audio only version. Go into the description of the podcast, click the link, buy the book. Once you get the book, take a photo of the book. I have also left Arun's Twitter handle there. Do the thing, tag him on Twitter and tell him you heard about the book on the Charbuck podcast and give him his feedback. Uh, you, Arun has said that he would love more uh, inputs about what, what, what areas of history you guys want him to cover. So please go ahead and write to him. As far as I'm concerned, I'll be back with you this Wednesday with other interesting guests and another interesting discussion. Uh, please support the Charbuck podcast. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like this video. Leave a comment. Support me on Patreon or on the YouTube membership or by buying the merch or sending your donations. I'll see you guys once again in, in a few hours. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.